Welcome to our third episode of Wesley's Trauma Talk. I'm here today with Dr. John Gallagher. He is the EMS Medical Director for Sedgwick County EMS located in Wichita, Kansas. We are talking about field amputations today, pre-planning, protocols, and what actually goes into making the cut. Dr. Gallagher is here to discuss field amputations and we actually have had a call about this. At the time I was serving as a medical officer at an EMS fire rescue service just south of Wichita, Kansas. The patient had his right leg entrapped in a grain auger. En route to the call, I knew I needed to give that patient the best chance for not only surviving, but having the highest level of life quality after the call. So I started making calls trying to get a surgeon en route to our scene. And I was very lucky through some friends to be able to get Dr. Gallagher's information and seeing if he would be willing to come out at that time. Yeah, it, w it was impressive logistics and teamwork, um, and, and I think we'll talk about some of the details on that, but um, getting everything together is what's going to make or break a scene like this. So um, yeah, w when we get to that point in the story, I'll, I'll definitely unpack some of those uh, facility-based details. So one thing that made me think about getting a hold of Dr. Gallagher and realizing how much goes into a surgical amputation in the field was a class I actually took of his at a Wesley Trauma Symposium. So while we were very fortunate that we were able to extricate the patient without amputation while Dr. Gallagher was on the way, we did see that we needed to pre-plan for these type of industrial accidents more. Dr. Gallagher, what does the ideal pre-plan look like for a field amputation? Sure, absolutely. So. While it's not the exciting or sexy part, the, the hardest part of a field amputation is the weeks and months that it's going to take you to build your program and have all of the pieces in place. And that all leads up to the point that you hope you never have to do, which is making the cut. So um, for, first of all, I was uh, very honored and, and pleased that the, the course that we had given at the trauma symposium, um, that you were one of the attendees and that that message hit home to you and was able to turn into real-time patient decision-making. I, I think that is the goal of everyone who teaches and tries to get experience out to people. So um, I, I would say for, for that call, the first success was in the classroom. So uh, hopefully uh, this podcast will do the same thing for other people out in the situation because you will never have a successful physician response if somebody in the field doesn't think about a physician response. Step one is thinking about it to be able to act on it. So um, on that particular day, I happened to be uh, working a clinical shift um, in the ER at Wesley, Maine. Um, and was able to immediately contact our emergency department director who helped move things around to cover the emergency department, freeing me up for the field response. So again, the logistics, the relationships, the ability to manage these things, your scene could have been without that resource if any one of these components didn't exist. This is not something that you're going to be able to throw together in the heat of the moment to the day of the need. You need to be working on it weeks and months ahead of time. Um, next in logistics is having an appropriately trained physician who is also appropriately equipped. And I don't just mean surgical instruments, I mean all of the other equipment that we're familiar with in the field. You have to have appropriate protective equipment, you have to have boots and helmets 
and an understanding of ICS. You have to understand that while our rescue partners are not the medical people, they're in charge of our safety. And when you hear an order from them that is a safety component, it's not a question, it's an order. And nothing against our facility-based physicians or surgeons, that's not an environment that they're used to. The, the surgeons are true experts in their field and they are used to being the top dog in the room and on scene. And that exposes them to some risk of not necessarily following the safety-based processes that we have in place for incident command. So Dr. Gallagher, do you feel that it is an advantage having a large team looking after your safety and your patient safety while you get to focus solely on patient care? Absolutely, because it, it allows me to put that focus with full confidence that they are watching my back. And if something changes, if the shoring isn't right, or if the gas levels change, or any of the things that are not in the forefront of my mind become a compromise to the scene, I know that that's what they're focused on. So the partnership dynamic is humongous. And we don't have that with in-hospital providers. They are experts at the procedures, right? A, a surgeon can do an amputation better than me. But if we can't get them out there appropriately equipped and operate safely, that's a loser every day. I really enjoyed during your presentation where you spoke about training with rescue crews. And not only that, you were actually training in the required safety gear, the bunker pants, the helmet, the, the, the large bulky jacket to get used to what would be a stressor to someone who'd never worn those things versus someone who's trained in a stressful environment with those things. Also, a lot of people don't seem to understand a rescue patient is always in a unique position or entrapment and not just laying in a subine position. Absolutely. And the positioning is, is key. So the, the difference between training for pre-hospital surgical procedures and in-hospital is oftentimes in positioning. So um, I, I'm part of the, the national group, the National Association of EMS Physicians, and, and we hold an annual course um, centered around pre-hospital surgical procedures. And we don't focus on how to do those procedures on a well-lit table. We focus on how to do them in a culvert or on the ground, right? You know, everybody talks about, you know, well, you've, you position the leg this way for an amputation. Well, what if you can't position the leg at all? right? Most of these things are crush injuries. And so at a bare minimum, you won't have access to the most posterior aspect of it. So anything in your plan that has to be circumferential may not function at all. So again, the methods, the positioning, the techniques that are used are not the same as our surgical counterparts are used to. So there's, there's differences in both the equipment and the safety profiles, but also in how the procedures are actually done. I, I implore people, do not ask your local surgeon to just leave the hospital to come help you. They're gonna show up in scrubs, wearing clogs, 
and be completely unfamiliar with how you do, and you will be putting them at risk. It doesn't mean that they won't be successful, right? Many of them are quite creative and can pull things off, but you will be dramatically increasing the risk of that physician in the scene. So please don't do that. Rely upon the resources that we have. We're very fortunate in Kansas that we have uh, programs for this in both Wichita and in Kansas City. We've got physicians that can deploy for this with partnership agreements with our flight services that we are prepared to get a pre-hospital physician anywhere in the state by air if called upon. That is an incredible resource. And further on in the podcast, we'll talk about how to make contact with them. Preparation is key in making one of these uh, patient extrications with a limb involvement successful. But Dr. Gallagher, would you mind talking us through the actual procedure if you had to make the cut? Sure. So um, site selection is first. So you want to preserve as much of the limb as possible. Um, in simple terms, it means you want to make the cut as low as you can. So um, for your patient, um, while in route, I was able to review the photos that you sent. Um, and I was actually able to collaborate with uh, several other um, EMS physicians on those photographs. And we were building a plan A, B, and C as I was moving to the scene. So um, the, the primary plan, the hope was that if we did have to make a cut, that we would be able to go below the knee, um, which has some considerations to be made. Um, when you're below the knee, you're dealing with two bones. And while those bones have some stability when functioning together, when you cut them, they lose that stability. On top of the fact that you've got soft tissues, fibrous tissues between the bones, which can cause complications for your saws and your blades. So being able to think about the differences of the anatomy at the different anatomic levels is important. This isn't going to be a one size fits all. Plan B, if we had to make a cut on your patient, was going to be um, a, a disarticulation, which means we would go through the joint. So that's neither a below the knee or an above the knee. That's a through the knee type joint or type uh, amputation. Um, that would uh, preserve uh, the entirety of the femur, um, but would be a good option if we couldn't get low enough to do a below the knee. And then the last resort on, on him would have been to do an, an above the knee. And I was hoping that we wouldn't get to that point, um, but, but that was a plan C for if the first two uh, weren't realistic. When it comes to actually doing the procedure, um, I don't want to ruin the magic, but it's not a particularly complicated procedure. Um, if you have the right equipment and the right training, getting through the soft tissue and getting through the bone, aren't uh, the difficult parts of this. Again, it's the preparation leading up to that. Um, uh, if, if somebody is interested, if there's physicians out um, in the state that are interested in developing this, uh, I, I would be more than happy to meet with them and, and help make sure that they have the training and the appropriate equipment. Um, but uh, the, the cut itself is the, the basketball going through the net. Everything that happens before is where the real preparations come from. I also remember from your field amputation lecture, you talked about some of the unique considerations on stopping bleeding during the amputation. Can you describe that a little bit more? One of the things that people don't think about is the amount of bleeding that you can get from the bone marrow space. 
Um, and I, it's not a particularly complicated concept. People just don't think about it. And the the conversation that really drives it home for people is, um, I think most of us are familiar with IO uh, meds or, or um, IO drills and the amount of flow and the amount of medicine or fluid that you can get into that bone marrow space when we're treating somebody with an IO is huge, right? We can actually accomplish fluid resuscitation through IO needles. And the reason that that's possible is because the bone marrow is so vascular well, now put that into a scene where you have intentionally cut that bone across, that entire vasculature space is now open to bleed and you can't compress it. You can crank a tourniquet down as tight as you want and you are never gonna close the bone marrow space. So one of the things that's critical but oftentimes not thought of in an amputation setup is having bone wax. There's actually surgical wax that is specifically designed to plug the bone marrow space to prevent hemorrhage. You can imagine how embarrassing it would be to have everything else successful and then have a patient bleed out through a bone marrow space. So again, there's way more to this than a day of job. So while you were in the helicopter and I was securing all these resources, the guys who were in charge of patient care and patient extrication were able to do a fantastic job of cutting the auger away from the patient and using a certain amount of chemical extrication via some ketamine and safely remove the patient while he remained stable. So a lot of people would look at this scenario and see that you were en route to the scene and that maybe I'd wasted your time. What would you say to them? Yeah, and, and I think that actually is probably the, the biggest um, you know, success story of, of this entire call is that it's, it's not a waste of time. It's the right thing to do. That if you, if you and your team had spent all of that time on scene, not reaching out for the potential of the next step, we would have lost all of that time if we had needed it. So I, I implore people, do not think of this as a wasted time. Um, and it was an incredible exercise of the system, right? Every time we stand up the process to put all of those moving parts together, it gets a little better. We get a little bit more refined. We get a little bit more experienced. Again, the cut at the end is such a tiny fraction of this process that being activated for that scene was a huge benefit to the system. So your, your guys deserve great congratulations. Yeah, I have to agree. I was incredibly impressed with the amount of patient care given that day, the expertise that got brought to the table for the patient extrication from that auger. I was just taking care of some resource stuff. Those guys did an incredible job maintaining that patient's airway, keeping them stable, controlling his pain. It was really inspiring to watch that happen. Back at the beginning of the program, you spoke about a service that gets a physician out to the scene here in Kansas in this Wichita area. Um, could you speak more about that? So um, again, we, uh, we're, we're fortunate to be able to offer this service um, for uh, your listeners that are closer to city of Wichita than to um, Kansas City. Uh, we maintain a 24-7 call line that gets you directly to the on-duty EMS physician. 
Um, and uh, we can we can be reached uh, 20, 24-7 at 316-530-2901. Again, 316-530-2901. That's a line that's answered all the time by a physician who is experienced in uh, field operations and field procedures. So uh, if you find yourself on a scene like this where it has crossed your mind, I encourage you to pick up the phone and talk through it. It doesn't commit you to activating the system or having somebody come out, but it's a way for you to have immediate access to somebody who's familiar with these things and can help you through the decision making. So um, I hope you use that resource. I can see where that would be a benefit to our rural hospitals and uh, EMS services across the board. Dr. Gallagher, thank you for taking time to talk with us today. This was an incredible episode. Well, so thanks for having me. Um, it's an honor to speak with you guys. Um, I, while I, I work in the city, my, my roots are in rural EMS, and so there's a special place in my heart for all of our people in the state um, who work away from the cities and have to deal with these issues. So um, a, a big thank you to all of those people, and if there's anything we can do to help, just reach out directly. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Gallagher, on this episode of Trauma Talk. Please remember new episodes drop every even Tuesday. Like, subscribe, and leave a review for our podcast. Remember, you can always reach me at aaron.shutton at wesleymc.com. If you have any questions about today's episode or any other, you can also find educational objectives listed on our landing page at wesleytraumatalk.podbean.com in the additional resources on the left side of the webpage. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.